Most of the male runners figured if any woman wants to run 26 miles in a driving rain, let her run. But veteran Boston trainer Jock Semple thought the whole thing was silly. No, there's enough competition for women. What the heck? Why did they want to tackle the, the, the toughest thing in the world? It's just the uh, women and their stubbornness just want to do something that they're not supposed to do. That's all there is to it. You know that. You're married. That was 50 years ago. In the time since, women have made remarkable progress towards equality in sport. Today, 40% of all athletes are women, and yet women still receive less than 4% of media coverage. The Iron Woman podcast wants to help change that. We interview female professional athletes and other remarkable women making breakthroughs in endurance, sport, and research. So that when I grow up, I will have heroes. I'm Alyssa Gadeski. I'm Haley Chura. And I'm Rosalie. And you're listening to the Iron Women Podcast. Triathlon is certainly hard on your skin, without a doubt. That was Teresa Helsel, dermatologist PA and accomplished triathlete. Earlier this year, Teresa came on the podcast to offer skincare advice specific to triathletes. Teresa's two biggest tips were to avoid sunburn and chafing. And luckily, Iron Women podcast listeners get 15% off all Zelio skincare products, including Sun Barrier SPF 45 zinc-based sunscreen and Betwixt Athletic Skin Lubricant and Chamois Cream. Use the code IRONWOMEN at teamzelios.com for 15% off and use Zelios products to protect your skin during all your swim, bike, run fun. And now, the ladies you've been waiting for, Alyssa Gadeski and Haley Chura. Bye for now. How's it going this week? Alyssa, I just got the coolest package in the mail. I got a marching, marching, matching bandana and face mask for myself and cowboy. So that we could be matching. It came from my mom and uh, she found it online and it's, um, it's so cute. And here's actually the mask part, but I'm going to hopefully post some pictures on social media when cowboy and I can do a proper photo shoot of us walking down the street matching and he looks so it's a minute and I'm gonna look great in this mask too. So, so there's the highlight of my day how I'm, are you I'm so jealous I think your mom's been shopping on Instagram though because I have seen those a couple times and I've resisted but I like no doubt want it and I think once I see your pictures from your photo shoot I am gonna have to like give in to the urge but we'll see I'll, I'll wait for you to like to give me the okay that it's totally worth this the Instagram I haven't seen those Instagram ads I must not be targeted I get like all the workout clothes and that kind of thing I'm not targeted for dog things I must not follow enough dog accounts that's maybe I need to follow more dog accounts well I've definitely clicked on a lot of things because at one point I bought something trying to get rid of Ramona's bad breath I think I've bought like some random nail clipper that took like years to come and when it did come it like wasn't correct and stuff like that so I'm like a hook line and sinker for Instagram ads for dogs apparently so not surprised that it's been showing up on my feed but um, I've learned my lesson so far I thought for sure the bandanas would come and they would be like picnic table size and then like the face mask would be like made for a doll or something because that's like the story of whatever else I've been ordering off of Instagram so I don't know I'm I'm sad that I'm apparently missing out on the one that's worth it this one was worth it. I can vouch for it. I'll send you the link. And um, yeah, maybe you and Ramona and me and Cowboy can all do dis- very, very shoot. long distance photo shoots, com- comparisons of how cute we all look. But how are things? Are you all recovered from your Jarman's challenge? Are you like already on to the next? Well, not on to the next. I think I'm recovered. Yeah, I had a good light week of recovery activities and um, I've been participating if people follow me on Instagram in a baking challenge each week. So I baked some buttermilk biscuits. That was excellent for recovery. We had some, some brunching with those. Um, not, it's been a quiet week, really just kind of same old, same old stuff. Virginia's kind of starting to open things back up. I guess that's kind of big news. Like on Friday, um, they were allowed to restaurants could operate like half, capacity outside only seating um 
and some other no I don't think anything indoors can happen quite yet but um so some things did choose to reopen a lot to be honest in Charlottesville still chose just not to do that um whether it's not worth it to them financially as a business or they just felt that it's too early to like do that um I think that was kind of a a consensus in town as well so um kind of interesting to see like how about your pool is your pool open yet the the actual like lap swimming pool no there is a pool in town that is open um that's actually long course meters and they're taking signups for like one person per lane um and you can sign up for an hour but you have to join and it's like really expensive to join and i've swum at that pool before i've done like a master's program at there other summers and after this month it gets warm like so fast and then it's like not to be honest my favorite to swim in so I'm just still swimming in place in the tiny pool that my friend has and getting my fix of the water that way, which is fine. I'm actually becoming like champion of the world swimmer in place in case anyone wants to race me in that sort of triathlon anytime soon. I I bet today's guest, Elizabeth Beisel, would take that challenge. She uh, you She's a pretty good swimmer. So maybe you two could do like a showdown swimmer in place. Who I will how, win? How you would even like measure like by the amount of waves that are creative and like water that gets displaced out of the pool because I feel like that is the worst problem with swimming in place. But anyway, there's no doubt that any sort of competition involving water, even like carrying water, Elizabeth Beisel would probably beat me in because she is just like so talented with anything that she touches water related. So I think she's like an actual world champion too. So we'll give her that. But, um, live feisty team had a big announcement this week. Did you catch that? I saw it. So people can starting today on Thursday, the day that if you're listening to us on the day that this podcast comes out on Thursday through Tuesday, the 26th, you can sign up to be a part of the feisty team. And so there is, you sign up and you can do it like pay for the year or pay on a monthly basis. And there's all sorts of stuff that comes with that. There's like monthly challenges with some prizes, team discounts, an online community. I think there's going to be a feisty app, um, virtual race options until probably we have some real race options happening. Um, virtual team meetups, webinars, an item from the feisty shop, all sorts of feisty things, Haley. That's a lot of feistiness. Wait, how long? It's open today, the day that this podcast comes out, May 21st. But how long do people have to sign up? Limited time only, folks. You got to get on it by Tuesday, May 26th. That's not much time. Where do they go? Is it, it, Does this cost anything? It I'm does, assuming it does. It does cost. There's, uh, depending if you want to do it for by month or by year, you you pay. And so those costs are all separated out. I actually, I didn't write down the um, sign up, but I'm assuming it's all over the Live Feisty Social and the website. Haley, did you write down the website? I think it's just livefeisty.com is what we know so far. So we are pre-recording this, but livefeisty.com, the information will be there on Thursday, May 21st. By the time this airs, we are certain of that. But sounds like a good, good time. I mean, you can check it out for a bit and meet some feisty friends and... Um, I'm kind of interested to see see how this rolls out, but cool thing. I, I honestly, I didn't even know about it. When they were saying the announcement about the announcement, I did not know this. So this was an announcement for me too. Surprise. Total surprise. I love it though. It's a lot of fun and a good time to be, you know, just making other connections with people that are like-minded. So let us know if you sign up and we'll be excited about it. And then... Noon Hydration, which is one of the podcast sponsors, had a big announcement earlier this week, and they launched their Podium Series, which is a like a before workout, a during the workout, and after workout beverage selection. And you have actually tried these already, Alyssa. Can you tell us about them? I did. So I, it was like the best kept secret. I actually kept the secret. During my five days of Jarman's, I actually did. I had some of this to test out and use during, which was awesome. And it worked obviously really well. Like I felt like I crushed the five days of Jarman's. So um, part of the secret to success there was using, adding in the noon hydration prime and then noon endurance during and then noon hydration recover afterwards. So the prime, Haley, all of these things are vegan and gluten-free for our listeners who need to think about that and super clean ingredients they the prime has bcaa's adaptogens and electrolytes and so all great things to be like 
packing your body with before a big workout. Also, one we of the versions. We went to BCAA, branch chain amino acid. Yes. Yes. I actually didn't know that. I was hoping you weren't going to say, like, say it too because I was like, I know this one. Um, but they also have a version that has caffeine, which if you know me, that's like a, a major go-to for a pre-workout situation. And so what I was doing, I was just getting up in the morning, making my coffee and then making my like little bottle with the noon prime and then just kind of sipping those simultaneously and seemed to work really well. Then I would have the noon endurance during, which Haley, I think we both know noon endurance quite well and love it for anything where we're sweating or not sweating too much. It's still good. And then the noon recover is a jump start to rehydrating and helping your muscle recovery benefits for after the workout. So again, there are BCAAs in that. And basically it delivers the muscle recovery benefits of 30 grams of protein. So it's not like packed with calories and protein necessarily, but it has those BCAAs that do that job. And they say it, they still recommend that you have like a full recovery meal of sort or like a meal um, within an hour of finishing your workout, that's kind of standard workout protocol, I guess. But this, you know, sometimes that window is super short. Like you'll hear people say that window is like 20 or 30 minutes. Having the recover buys you some time for that meal, right? So you can hit the recover. That's like jump starting the recovery system. And then you can get back, have your meal, etc. And Iron Women listeners get a discount, right? On everything at noon noonlife.com yes. right 30% off 30% Is, are off. these available on noonlife.com right now they are get them while they're hot and tell them tell us if you use them tell us how you're using it or workouts we love to hear all about that stuff and you do have to use the code iron women when you check out to get that 30% off noonlife.com use the code iron women get 30% off be primed and endured and recovered for all your workouts Haley we aren't going to do any mailbags this any questions from the mailbag this week we actually I wanted to go through two retractions if you will um do you want to do you want to take the first one Haley the first one yeah the first one was about form swim goggles which we plugged last week and I think I said that they don't work in open water the distance feature doesn't work in open water and then the day that 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 podcast came out at form like a big, a big announcement that distance the distance metric was going to be working in open water so Big announcement, form swim, those goggles. They'll be able to calculate your distance. You'll be able to see a GPS map after your workout. Uh, once they have to have that firmware upgrade, which is happening during the summer. So it won't work right this second, but it is coming. It's in the works. And I wanted to make sure that no one was misled. You still can definitely see clock and everything right now. So definitely check those out, formswim.com. And know that in the summer, there's going to be a firmware update that will let you map out your swims to your heart's content. And our second correction from last week is that on a mailbag question, we had Peter who wrote in and said how he was hashtag inspired by Lail and was taking on a challenge and for June. So he's doing this epic run through the night in June, and he's doing this to help raise money for a nonprofit called Shelter Movers. And I incorrectly stated the website that you can go to to find out more and to donate. So the correct website is runthroughnight.org. So head there, check out what Peter's doing. Super cool. And we have heard from more people just who are inspired by Lail. And I also like the hashtag I saw endorsed by Alyssa. I think that's kind of fun. I might start just using that in everyday life some more, but keep telling us those things. And if you have questions you or comments you would like to send us and we can answer things correctly or incorrectly, because we We'll correct ourselves on a future episode if we if we learn about that. So ironwomenpodcast at gmail.com. And this week we are talking to three-time Olympic swimmer and two-time Olympic medalist, Elizabeth Beisel. So Elizabeth came on the show to talk about her recently launched book. It's called Silver Lining. And it's a really fascinating look at basically the entire arc of her athletic career. Elizabeth was kind of a phenom in the pool and out of the pool as she was breaking records and representing Team USA in Beijing. And that was even before she could had a driver's license. She became a standout student athlete at the University of Florida, won a silver medal in the 400 IM and a bronze in the 200 backstroke at the London Olympics. And that's while she was still in college. 
And Elizabeth's journey wasn't without a few challenges. And she shares how her perspective on, on how those challenges that she faced as an athlete ultimately helped her navigate the quote unquote real world. As people's pools reopen, they might be able to draw some inspiration from the swim workouts that Elizabeth describes from her high school days. Though we caution, maybe give yourself a few weeks or maybe a few months or a few years in some cases, that might be me, um, to build up to, before you attempt any Elizabeth Beisel challenges. We'll have our conversation with Elizabeth Beisel right after the break. Iron Women is proud to be supported by Form Goggles in 2020. Form goggles are the only swim goggles with a smart display that delivers metrics like split times, distance, pace, and more. And it's built right into the goggle lens. You can also analyze your metrics outside of the pool with the Form Swim app, because what triathlete doesn't love data? Head to formswim.com to learn more about the Form Swim goggles and pick up the missing link to your swim bag. As triathletes, we should all be committed to fueling our bodies with products we are confident in. At Iron Women, Noon Hydration is our go-to. Committed to clean hydration, a clean planet, and clean sport, Noon Hydration shares our values, and we are proud to use Noon Hydration on and off the race course. Plus, it tastes good. My favorites are the Watermelon Noon Sports Tabs, Citrus Mango Noon Endurance, and then warming up some Noon Rest before bedtime. Noon Hydration offers the Iron Women community a 30% discount at noonlife.com with the code IRONWOMEN. That's N-U-U-N life.com with the code IRONWOMEN. Hi, Elizabeth. Welcome to the Iron Women podcast. Hi, guys. Thanks so much for having me. In your book, Silver Lining, you describe yourself as a constantly productive person. Are you actually enjoying some downtime right now? <laughs> it's actually been a really hard adjustment. Um, I do think it's taught me to slow down a little bit because I am so go, go, go. Um, but I think it's finally starting to settle in where I'm getting very antsy and ready to get back to normal life. I think like we all are. Um, but I definitely do think this downtime has been good for me um, just to really slow down, shut off and enjoy the, the simpler things in life. And Elizabeth, Silver Lining is your first book, and it's an autobiographical look at your life as a three-time U.S. Olympic swimmer and a two-time Olympic medalist. But you have, like, so much other stuff that you give through this book. So did you write this book for a specific audience and, like, have people in mind as your target? Yeah, I, you know, I wrote the book with the target audience of anybody that is in the world of athletics or has a competitive fire. I think growing up as a teenage girl in the sport of swimming, I kind of want to be referred to. And so for me to be able to write that and give a teenage girl or boy, honestly, some insight into what it's like to be fully committed to a sport that you love and something that you do and you want to pursue um, and have that inspiration behind it and know that it is possible. I think that's kind of what I was going for in the book was to just show that you might just be in high school or college or whatever it is, but it's never too early or late to go after your dreams. And hopefully after reading the book, whoever it is that picks it up feels inspired to go after whatever it is that they're pursuing, whether that's sports or music or acting or whatever it is. Um, because I think, you know, society kind of labels us sometimes and tells us that we're one thing and not the other. And I think, you know, for me, I always wanted to be an Olympic swimmer, but there were so many obstacles thrown in my way where I was too small or I wasn't from the right place or I didn't have the right coach. And it was just me being like, you know what, I'm going to prove everybody wrong and I'm going to do this because I want to. So hopefully that resonates with everybody that reads the book and they can draw something from it that helps them out. As you describe your childhood and your introduction to swimming, you seem like a very precocious child. So not only were you breaking national age group records at after just one year in the pool, but you were reading Harry Potter and developing a deep appreciation for violin by age seven. And that seems really advanced. Did you feel like you were ahead of your peers, both in and out of the pool? I think I felt a little bit ahead of my peers in the pool. Um, I would say that I kind of have a natural feel for water and you guys will obviously understand this by just being athletes, especially Haley and your swimming and stuff. So for me, it was like, you know what? I 
I'm really good at this because it's just natural to me. But I think like the Harry Potter stuff, I remember racing my best friend, Emily. You know, we'd go home after school and read however many pages and come in the next day and be like, how many pages did you read? And it was just always a competition with me. Um, and the violin was kind of the outlet where I didn't necessarily have many people to compare myself to because it was just me and my teacher. And it was just me alone practicing at home. And that was that was my thing that I just did alone. I didn't have to race. I didn't have to be the best at it. It was just very soothing for me and something that got me outside of the pool and outside of school, um, which I was very appreciative for. I'm not surprised with the competitive reading. I think I did that early in, <laughs> in my childhood oh, yeah. too against my sister. We would like yeah. go to the library and like stack our arms full of books and be like, I'm reading more than you this week. And it was like the most ridiculous. I think it turned me into like a lifelong skim reader though. I don't fully digest things a lot of time, which is actually an issue now. But anyway, <laughs> I digress. <laughs> I love that. Me too. Um, it did seem like there were some drawbacks to the early success as you often ended up training with athletes who were a lot older than you. And we can imagine the 15 year olds don't really love like eight year old Elizabeth beating them in meets and practice. So as an adult, I know it can be hard to work in an environment if you don't feel totally welcomed. How did you, did you even address that when you were so young or like, how did you handle that, those feelings and feeling just like not welcomed in that space? Yeah, it was honestly a reoccurring theme um, as I was a young child growing up through the sport. And I felt like I suppressed it for so many years because it was honestly just the way that it was. And so for, you know, when I was on my first swim team and I'm seven or eight years old beating the 15 year old boys, there was one particular day where I beat the guy and he just started like screaming these profanities and, you know, cursing my name out and as a seven or eight year old, I don't really know how to react to that other than, oh my gosh, I did something wrong. I don't want to do that again because I didn't like the way that made me feel. Um, so I would hold back in practice sometimes or just be very reserved, which isn't really in my nature. I'm an extrovert. I love to be around people. Um, and then that kind of carried over in a different way into my national team swimming career where, you know, I made my first team at 13 and I'm on a team with people like Michael Phelps and Natalie Coughlin and I had these people's posters on my wall in my room and that was kind of a it was a shocking moment to me because I didn't know how to interact with these people and it's not like I was necessarily an outcast they they weren't doing that and making me feel like that on purpose but how does somebody that's 21 as a senior in college relate to a 13 year old girl who's in middle school that you know still has her braces on so for me it was it was really growing up fast and trying to, you know, stay out of the limelight too much. I didn't want to bother anybody, um, but also trying to figure out, all right, if I'm going to be good and I'm always going to be the youngest, you know, I can't keep suffering like this and feeling alone. So I kind of had to figure out my own way to be friends with the older kids. And I think that's where I had a lot of my maturity as a young athlete was I was just always surrounded by older men and women. Um, and then I feel like that carried me through my college career and, and beyond. Did you ever feel the lure of being a normal kid your age? Oh, yeah. I felt it a lot. And that was one thing that I did struggle with so much in my swimming career was, you know, being away for an entire summer because I'm at nationals and then a training camp and then world championships or whatever it was. And you know, being away from my friends for two months out of the summer where they're going to the beach or they're going to the mall and they're, you know, it's so clicky in middle school and high school. All I wanted to do was fit in. Um, and there was that strange, you know, balance of I want to pursue being an Olympic swimmer. And I know that it's a crazy dream, but I also want to be just a normal high schooler and hang out with my friends after school and not have to leave my friend's house on a Friday night at 8 p.m. because I have a 5 a.m. morning practice the next day. So, I mean, ultimately, I obviously chose swimming and chose that path, but there were so many temptations kind of just sprinkled throughout the way that made it just a little bit harder. So at the 2008 Olympic trials, you were 15 years old and you were considered a contender for a spot on the Olympic team in the 200 backstroke. But on the first day of the meet, 
You shocked yourself and most of the swimming community by posting the fastest time of the preliminary heats in the 400 IM. So despite this great and unexpected result, you write that your initial reaction was worry because you were worried that you weren't going to be able to repeat it. So how did you cope with that fear? Yeah, I think that was honestly one of the most impactful days of my swimming career because obviously having the shock of going the fastest time in the world and breaking an Olympic trials record, going into the event, not expecting anything. It's a lot. And especially for a 15 year old girl, um, like I was at the time. And so I dealt with that, honestly, not that great. Um, I remember spending that entire afternoon heading into finals, you know, sick to my stomach because I, all I kept thinking about was the, what if I fail? What if I can't do this again? You know, what if I embarrass myself and my coaches and my family? Um, and I, I just wasn't ready to feel that failure. And I remember going to the pool that night and obviously doing my warm up. And I end up throwing up right after my warm up on one of my best friends and teammates because I was so nervous. Um, you know, there's so many doubts rolling in my head. And my coach was kind of watching this as a bystander slowly happen. And he wa he's watching me like slowly derail myself. And um, I remember he came up to me about 20 or 30 minutes before the race. And he was like, Elizabeth, what's wrong with you? And I just broke down into tears. And I was like, I can't do this tonight. I'm not ready to make an Olympic team in front of thousands of people and possibly fail and let myself down and let you down. Um, and he ended up pulling over one of his very good childhood friends who was also the 1992 Olympic gold medalist in the hundred breaststroke, which I had no idea at the time. I didn't know who this man was that he had an Olympic gold medal. And so Chuck, my coach brought over Nelson and Nelson sat down next to me 20 minutes before my race. And he pulls an Olympic gold medal out of his pocket and he dangles it in front of my face. And he goes, if you do not believe in yourself tonight, you will never win one of these. And he put it back in his pocket and he walked away. And, you know, I'm sitting there sopping wet in a chair, having this epiphany moment because of what Nelson said. And I was like, you know what? He's right. I need to believe in myself tonight. Otherwise, I'm just letting all that hard work go to waste. I'm letting myself down, my coach down. I'm, I've done the time. You know, I can do it. I've proven myself in prelims just eight hours ago. Um, and then, you know, 20 minutes after I had that conversation with Nelson, I made the Olympic team. And I love that story because it just goes to show how important your mental mindset is going into a race or a competition or a performance or whatever it is. Because if you're going into something, believing in yourself and knowing that you can do it and you deserve to do it, your body is going to reflect that and it's going to behave accordingly. But, you know, for me, I was, I was 20 minutes away from absolutely embarrassing myself had Nelson not talked to me. Um, and I still thank him to this day for having that conversation with me because it changed my entire perspective on sports and competition and what I need to be as an athlete ready to perform before my race if I want to reach my potential. So it, it, it was a little rocky at first, but then it ended up all working out. But it is a really cool and valuable lesson that I was able to learn at a young age. And like you said, you did qualify for the 2008 U.S. Olympic team in both the 400 IM and the 200 backstroke. In Beijing, you finished fourth and fifth in those events. And again, you were 15 years old, fourth and fifth at the Olympic Games. But you, you write that those results felt like a big disappointment. Can you tell us about some of the unspoken assumptions that are placed on Team USA swimmers? Yeah, I think that's something that, you know, not many people truly understand unless you're in those shoes as an athlete competing at the Olympic games or not even just the Olympics world championships or any opportunity you get to represent your country, especially the United States. You know, we are bred to be excellent. We're bred to be on top of the podium. And that's kind of an unspoken, not rule per se, but expectation when you're on the Olympic team for the United States is, Hey, we're showing up to these Olympics. We're the best. We're historically the best swim team in the world. You know, it's unspoken that you should be on that podium. And so for me as a 15 year old going to my first Olympics, all I wanted to do was prove my country 
and prove my coaches and teammates that I could do it and make them proud. And for me to narrowly miss a medal and get fourth and fifth in my two events, it's, you know, looking back on it, I'm like, oh my God, I would kill to be fourth and fifth in the world again at something. But, you know, as a 15 year old, you don't have that perspective, especially when you're in the heat of the moment. And so for me, I remember leaving Beijing feeling like a failure um, and being, you know, like, you know what, next time that I show up to the Olympic games, I'm going to be on that podium. I'm not going to let my country down again next time. And it was kind of cool because I was able to have that conversation with a fellow teammate, Allison Schmidt, um, who, you know, she was the next youngest person behind me and she didn't perform to her. I mean, her potential, honestly, at those games. And she ended up placing ninth in the Turner freestyle and getting a bronze medal on a relay. But personally, her performances were short of her expectations. So she and I kind of had this conversation on the plane home from the 2008 Olympics where we were like, you know what? This wasn't the games that we wanted, but the next games in 2012, everybody better watch out because those are going to be our games and we're going to be on the podium. And so two years after those Olympics, you left Rhode Island to attend college at the University of Florida. And we've seen other athletes with your kind of race resume opt out of collegiate swimming or commit to only two years before they pursue professional sponsorship opportunities. But it seems like you were fully committed to not only swimming in college, but swimming for all four years. Was that a difficult decision to forego sponsorship opportunities? You know what? It was so interesting because once I came back from the 2008 Olympics, I was almost thrown every sponsorship deal you could imagine because, you know, 10, 12 years ago, that's what people did. They were a 15 or 16 year old Olympian, went professional and they signed with a suit company and a plates company and a credit card company and all these things. I was lucky enough to parents that were very grounded and didn't really make a fuss about my Olympic experience. And they said, you know what, Elizabeth, at the end of the day, you're a student athlete you're going to college. And, you know, my family, we didn't have the money to pay for four years of, of college. So I was lucky enough that I had swimming in order to really get me that scholarship to get me to school. And, you know, those four years ended up being the best four years of my life. So much. I met so many incredible people. I got an education out of it. And I do think that's one thing that I was really lucky to have through my parents was, that sense of normalcy and that, yes, I've done amazing things in the pool and I've been to the Olympics, but at the end of the day, your swimming's only going to get you so far. And my parents were smart enough to really see that, especially at, you know, my age and my caliber. And they didn't care. They were like, nope, you're going to school. You're going to do your four years. And I'm so lucky that they had that perspective because again, best four years of my life. In your book, you describe the change in training once you arrived at Florida. So is it true that up to that point in your career, you had never trained more than once per day? You swam six times a week and you had never done any strength or dry land work. Yeah. And and I think, you know, one thing that I will say, I never did doubles. I never lifted away, hardly did dry land. But the practices that we were doing, you know, they were three hours long on Monday through Friday and then four hours on Saturday. So... We, we were putting in the work just in a very condensed period of time. And that's because the only pool that we really had available for our team was 45 minutes away from my house. And there was just no way that I was going to get up at 3.30 in the morning and drive 45 minutes to practice and then drive 45 minutes back to go to school and then do it again after school. And then it, it would have just been too much. I would have been spread way too thin. And you know, I'm somebody that really likes to stay busy, but that would have been too much. Um, so I think for me, I was just proud that I was putting in the work. I was working with what we had, you know, it was just an eight lane, 25 yard pool, nothing special. Um, but I kind of loved that. I loved the humble beginnings. I loved the fact that I was able to do really incredible things without a crazy, insane facility and without a, a, an extremely world renowned coach. Um, and that, that just gave me even more pride into what I was doing and how I was doing it. And so, yeah, no doubles until college. And that was definitely a shock to my system once I got there because my body was the most tired it had ever been in my life. And, and I would say it took probably 
a good three or four months to fully adjust to that. But once I did, my swimming just skyrocketed and I ended up dropping, you know, up to five seconds in all my best events, which is, is unheard of at that age. But I definitely attribute that to not doing doubles in my early years of swimming during middle school and high school. And Elizabeth, most of our listeners are triathletes and triathletes love data. So you just gave us kind of like an hours, but let's translate that into typical yardage or meterage ranges. So like for a mid-season high school and college workout, you know, what kind of yardage were you actually seeing for like that three hour session and that four hour session on the weekends? Yeah. So I come from a club team that is notoriously high volume yardage. So, you know, that four hour Saturday morning practice, we'd be hitting 12 to 14 K. Um, and I remember like, it's insane. I loved it while I did it. And I don't know why, maybe I'm a masochist. I don't know, but we would have like periodically these practices probably four times a year, once around like Columbus day, once around Memorial day, you know, every season I would say, and it would be like Chuck, who is my coach, his name, Chuck's special. And we would show up and it would be a seven to eight hour long practice. And we'd be in the pool the entire time. And I'm not kidding. We'd put in 25 to 30 K over the course of those seven to eight hours. And we, it, I mean, we'd be swimming continuously, you know, three thousands at a time, five thousands at a time. And we'd have snacks at the end of our lane. And I mean, you guys are triathletes, so you know how important it is to fuel every couple hours or every however often you guys fuel. But for us, it was like every time I got to the wall, I was trying to chug as much Gatorade as I could. Or I had my goose right there. Or I had a protein bar. So those were the practices that we almost had to because we had to overcompensate for lack of pool time and pool space. And we weren't getting 50-meter training in. And we were known as being a really successful long course swimming team without a long course pool. And I do think that's because we trained high volume so often and it wasn't too high that we wouldn't ever recover from it. You know, after that 26 K practice, we'd probably come in the next day and just do a two to three K loosen. You know, we did it smart. Um, but when we did it, Oh my gosh, I loved it. I took so much pride in being that distance athlete. And, and that was just, that was who I was. And that was why I was fast. You know, I wasn't successful in the swimming world because I was tall or talented or, you know, had the right coach or was born in Florida into a swimming family. I just worked hard. I was a grinder. And for all of you guys as triathletes, you, you get it. You know, you don't get good at triathlons by just showing up once a week and, you know, maybe doing a 5k, you know, you, you need to put in the work. I feel like you should, um, you should put out, you should have like the Elizabeth, once the pools reopen, we can have the Elizabeth Beisel like challenge for triathletes and see if they can do one of your, uh, high school workouts. Alyssa would definitely do it. I probably, I would cheer her on and hand some goos and snacks, but, um, that's, that's some impressive yardage. Elizabeth, you describe a time after your freshman year when you developed an interest party scene and the lack of sleep and poor nutrition that often accompanies late nights took its toll on your swimming performances. So while this may be the most relatable part of your story thus far, what makes or what might surprise listeners is that it wasn't a coach or a school nutritionist that got you back on track, but a teammate. Did you have access to professional help like nutritionists or counselors at the University of Florida? Yeah, we did. And I didn't listen (laughs) my freshman year. You know, I was just so wrapped up in trying to be a normal freshman, um, in college. And, you know, I was so good up until NCAAs, which are in March for swimmers. And then kind of after NCAAs happened, I wanted to let loose, you know, I wanted to be that, that college freshman who was just enjoying the nights out with teammates. And, um, I kind of indulged in that. And then I overindulged in that. And, you know, it was a teammate that came up to me and they were kind of like, Hey, are you taking care of your body? Um, and it happened to be at a swim meet that we were at and I swam so poorly, you know, the the worst I've swam since I was probably 12, honestly. And it was that wake up call that I needed to really figure out that nutrition plays a way bigger role than you think. And, you know, in high school, 
it wasn't really ever a big deal because I had my family's cooking and that was just what it was. And then as soon as I got to college, there was a little bit more freedom, especially after those NCAAs, which was our, our pinnacle of the season. And so for me, it was really a self explorative time where I was figuring out what foods worked for me, what didn't. Um, I couldn't be staying up until 2 a.m. and then showing up to practice the next day and expecting to be fast and expecting to recover as much as I, I normally would. And so for me, it, it was a really big learning experience. And I'm glad that I got it over with that early on in my career. Um, but after that, it was nutrition was just as important as the yards that I was putting in, in the pool. And especially as we get older as athletes, I think that becomes even more important. Um, because if you're, if you're trying to go to that next level in your sport, you can't just do it by showing up on your bike or on the track or in the pool. You have to do it outside the pool. You have to be eating the right things, recovering, sleeping enough. And it, it, you know, it's a 24 seven job if you want to be the best. And I hadn't fully grasped that yet as a freshman in college because everything before that was always so easy. Um, so it was kind of a big wake up call for me, but I'm glad it happened because I think it inevitably made me into a better swimmer later on in my career because I knew what I could and couldn't do. Um, so, so yeah, very big learning experience. When you look back now, do you, do you think that it's possible to kind of balance the, uh, the freedoms that college brings with these big goals that you have and racing at the top caliber, is it all or nothing or is there a way to do both? I think there is a compromise to do both. And that compromise for me was, you know, I would say 2012 was my best year of swimming. I was a sophomore in college and I wasn't drinking at all. I wasn't doing anything at all, but I would still go out and be social. You know, I just wouldn't stay out until two. I'd go out, I'd have a soda water to drink and I'd stay out until 10 and go to bed. And so I wanted to, to stay social and be with my friends, but I also didn't want to compromise my performance in the pool because at the end of the day, me winning medals were way more important than me having a night out with my friends. Um, but I was at least somewhat compromising and getting a little bit of both. Um, but I do think that if you're trying to be the best, it is probably like 99% in 1%. You're splurging a little bit on whatever it is, but you do need to be laser focused because there's always somebody else out there that's working just a little bit harder than you or sacrificing a little bit more than you. And you don't want to go to bed the night before your Olympic final and think, oh man, I could have, I could have been better or I could have done more. Um, and so for me, it, it was trying to find a reasonable compromise just to honestly keep myself sane um, because it is such a hard sport. And, you know, I think that worked for me, but it is, it is a lot of sacrifice for sure. And you did get back on track. You won your first world championship in the 400 IM in 2011, making you an overwhelming favorite leading into the 2012 U S Olympic trials and the London games. So you write about lining up for the 400 IM at those trials, feeling the pressure of being the favorite and being worried that someone younger might come out of nowhere like you had four years earlier. You wrote, even once you've become a world champion, you're still human. We so often root for the underdog, but do you think we should also be feeling some like sympathy kind of and like rooting for the favorite sometimes, even when it feels like, you know, everyone's rooting for the favorite. So you got to pick someone else. I know it's so hard and I, I am like your go-to underdog, cheer, like biggest cheerleader. And so, you know, for me going into those trials, the heavy favorite, it was my first time ever tasting what it was like to be the hunted. And I think that that was really scary because it's almost like you have something to lose and you're also defending something. And, you know, when you're the hunter and you're the underdog, you're just trying to pull as many names down as you can and claw yourself to the top. And I definitely think we should feel sympathy for anybody that's at the top because there is a little bit of extra pressure to do what you've already done. Um, and you know, that's why I think anybody that has been at the top of their sport for a long period of time needs to be recognized and commended, not for just being the best, but, for being able to mentally handle that pressure because 
it can be debilitating at times. And if you don't know how to deal with it, that underdog is going to take advantage of that opportunity and they're going to win. And so for me, it was my first time feeling scared of, oh my gosh, you know, I'm the favor favorite. What if I don't perform? Then I'm no longer the favorite. Then there's somebody else new and I failed. I failed to protect what was not mine, but I guess kind of what was mine. So it is, it is a hard spot to be in. Um, I'm not going to complain about being in that spot, but it definitely is hard. You did qualify for the London Olympics and you were the favorite to win the gold medal in the 400 AM there. And an unknown athlete did come out of nowhere and surprise the world. So the name of your book, Silver Lining, refers to that race where you were leading through 300 meters when China's Yi Shi Wen posted the fastest final 100 meter split of women or men to break the world record and win the gold medal. Do you feel like that was the defining race of your career? Oh, that's a really good question. I think, I think so. I think that was, that was kind of the race where I knew the gold medal was either mine or it wasn't. And that's kind of a hard pill to swallow when it isn't the gold medal that you win. And again, I'm not complaining about silver, like, oh my gosh, I'm so proud of that race. But I think when you chase a dream for so long and that dream is Olympic gold and, you know, the one shot that you have to win it, it doesn't go your way. You're like, oh man, like now we got to go back to the drawing board and reevaluate things. And, you know, the race itself was, it didn't make it easier because I, I was leading, you know, I touched that the 300 and I was like, I'm about to win an Olympic gold medal. You know, this is what little Elizabeth, you know, seven year old Elizabeth has dreamed of and she's going to do it right now. And then not even 15 meters later, I just got passed as though I wasn't even moving. And so there were a lot of emotions going through my mind during that race. You know, I went from touching the wall thinking I was winning with a hundred meters left to Oh, well, I'm definitely not winning this. I'm going to get silver. And you want to feel excited about that. But then at the same time, you're disappointed. So it was such a, a weird mixture of emotions. But I definitely do think that was the career defining swim. I mean, it was the fastest I've ever swam a 400 IM. It was my best time. I got a, my first Olympic medal for my country. You know, I kind of did what I set out to do after those 2008 Olympics. And regardless of whether I came out with a gold or a silver or a bronze or whatever, I was so proud to have just been the best version of myself that night. And I did that by going a best time and winning a silver medal. And that's okay. On a slightly less serious note, I guess, for, for somehow they might want to see this. Um, you do tell a story in the book about how Alison Schmidt convinces you to do something crazy before the finals in the London Olympics, which was go get a coffee. <laughs> so I had to like, yeah. I like paused reading this. I was like, wait a second. What? Because had you really never used caffeine like before racing and training, or was it like you had never tried it before a big race? And I mean, I'm just picturing myself. If I do this Elizabeth challenge, 12 to 14 K weekend swim here with, I'm sure has like a lot of, I am mixed in. I'm going to have to like line up four Red Bulls on the like, side of the pool to get me through. So I'm just, I was just like shocked by that. Is that really had not been a part, like a staple for you? I kid I had never had a drop of caffeine until like two hours before my Olympic final in the tuna backstroke. I, I swear. And I think that was honestly, that was the most magical night for Allison and I. One, because we discovered caffeine and the effect on us. And if you guys know Allison Schmidt, if you think I'm energetic, she's like a million times more than me. We don't need caffeine naturally. And so when you give us caffeine, it's like, it's a, we go AWOL. And so for us to have that caffeine in our system, and we were both swimming so well at those Olympic games. That night, she ended up winning her tuna freestyle gold medal. I ended up winning a bronze medal in the tuna backstroke, which was kind of a surprise for me. I wasn't planning on meddling in that. And I'm not kidding. After that race, I never swam a race without caffeine before it. I was like, this stuff is amazing. I need this for everything. 
so that was that was my rapid um, decline into the caffeinated world. After the London Olympics, you you actually struggled with both your physical and mental health. Did you work with a sports psychologist? Yes, so we had a sports psychologist available to us at the University of Florida as a student athlete, which was incredible. And, you know, I don't think I met with her as much as I needed to. And that's something that I truly do regret, you know, not taking advantage of that incredible opportunity to really open up to somebody that's there to help my athletic career. And it it was a struggle because I do think that some people don't understand the the high of the Olympics and then the low that follows it where, you know, you, you walk on water at the Olympics, you especially if you win a medal, you know, so many people are there cheering you on and you have your medals and you're doing interviews and everybody wants your picture and your autograph and all that good stuff. And then, you know, a month or two after that life goes back to normal. And I found myself just sitting in a classroom at the university of Florida, taking exams and quizzes and ho- doing homework, like, like everybody else. And it was a hard reality to come back to. And it's something that all Olympians struggle with. And, you know, it's coined as post-Olympic depression. Um, But it definitely was something that, that took a toll on me, at least for that entire year of my junior year of swimming, um, because I just felt like I couldn't get excited. You know, I felt like my best was behind me. And I didn't know how to get that back and that love for the sport back. And so although I did meet with the sports psychologist, I I do regret not meeting with her more um, because I do think that can just help you tremendously as an athlete. And it seems like you were racing through injury or illness at the 2013 and 2015 World Championships and the 2016 Olympic trials. So Looking back now, do you feel like it was worth it to have put yourself kind of through that sort of almost like trauma, like mentally and physically to put yourself through it when you weren't feeling like you could compete 100 percent? Yeah, it it was definitely hard. I feel like after those 2012 Olympics, everything started to unravel slowly but surely and not in like a great way. But I, I would do it all over again because I feel like I learned so much about myself and I learned how tough I am. And that's something that I took a lot of pride in is, you know, dealing with adversity and just facing it eye to eye and rising to the occasion and doing my best to be my best, even when things aren't going my way. And I can't tell you how many times I've drawn those memories back up when I'm dealing with something now in quote unquote real life. You know, I'm not swimming anymore, competing anymore, but I'll remind myself of those times of adversity and when I really stepped up to the plate when things weren't going my way and rose to the occasion and did it successfully. And that gives me a lot of confidence in real life, which has helped me so much. And and I think that's one thing that we can all relate to as athletes is we put ourselves through so much mentally and physically. And if we can get through the stuff that we put ourselves through as an athlete, Anything else that comes our way in the future that's not athletics, we can tackle them and we can tackle them successfully. So for me, I'm so grateful that I was a swimmer and that I pushed through all of those hard times because it's shaped me into the really tough, resilient human being that I am today. And I'm proud of that. And I think everybody listening to this podcast should be proud of yourselves. You know, you're choosing to do triathlons, most of you guys. And I couldn't do a triathlon. I stink on the bike and running. And so you guys are already way braver than me. And it's, and it's just so impressive and humbling to honestly, even be on a podcast that is majority, that's the majority of listeners are, are triathletes because I, I couldn't do it. So I have the utmost respect for you guys. I'm pretty sure you could do it. You, you would have a pretty good cushion after the swim if you got into <laughs> Ironman racing. So you might surprise yourself, I guess, with that, but Elizabeth, do you think that coaches need to be like when they're coaching at elite levels, kind of more prepared to help athletes through their final seasons? I guess as I was reading your book, I just had Lindsey Vaughn's documentary of the final season popping into my head again and again at times because it was reminiscent of a lot of the themes 
that you faced in your last years of your career with injury, dealing with the up and coming success stories, stealing the limelight, like having coaches who were there when you were succeeding, but finding a lot of empty hotel rooms when it came down to the more trying times. And while our listeners might, you know, struggle to an extent with what happens after the pinnacle of their career, even if it's at like the amateur level, right? Like we all have that feeling at some point in our athletic career that like this is probably the best we're going to be right and so like how do we get to what's next so do you do you feel that coaches should be better prepared for that or do you have words of advice for people who are kind of going into that time yeah I I think every coach should be equipped enough to help an athlete go through that transition because when you leave your sport or you leave the best behind you and your respect is for it's kind of like mourning a death. You know, you're no longer that person. I'm no longer Elizabeth Beisel, the swimmer. And you need to reinvent yourself and figure out what's next and what makes me happy. And, you know, I, I was lucky enough to have a su- support system that was there for me during that transitional period. But even with that support system internally, it didn't really make it any easier Um, And it's a really, really tough thing to go through when you are making that transition. And and I think my advice would be is once you know that the best is behind you or you're finished with your sport, say yes to everything that's thrown your way after that. And for me, that was even, even the little things, even if it was just fun, you know, I was saying yes to going to travel, which I couldn't do beforehand because I was always training or Yes to a public speaking event that wasn't going to pay me, but I wanted to get better at public speaking. Um, You know, anything that was thrown my way that would give me experience outside of the pool and outside of my sport, I was doing. And then through that, I was able to figure out what I didn't like and what I did like and what I wanted to pursue. And, you know, here I am confidently saying that, you know, I'm working in the dream job that I want to do, you know, I have a job with NBC and ESPN and USA swimming and staying within the sport of swimming, but in a different way and doing it on the media side of things. And I've found joy in the sport again, that I kind of lost towards the end because the best was behind me. I wasn't swimming my best anymore. I wasn't enjoying it anymore, but now I'm back to loving the sport. And I feel like I had to go through those hard times during that transition to be where I am today. And so I think just saying yes is such a good mantra to have when you're in that transitional period. Um, and it'll help you guys a lot. At your third and final Olympics in Rio in 2016, you finished sixth in the 400 IM and you write about how all the media attention kind of suddenly stopped immediately after that result. So You've mentioned you've worked in media yourself. Do you think there's something wrong with our sports media culture that the defending silver medalist placing sixth in the Olympics warrants no media attention? Um, <laughs> I would probably say a little bit. And and that's kind of part of my motivation now that I'm in the media field is to honestly tell the stories of everybody. You know, not just the Michael Phelps but the Elizabeth Beisel, because everybody has a pretty incredible story that has gotten them to where they are now, whether that's the Olympics or amateur, whatever it is. And I want to be that person getting those stories out there because I think, especially as swimmers, you know, if we're winning all the medals, people will know us, but still they only know the surface level of us. They know that we're fast at the 400 IM and we want a silver medal and that's pretty much it. You know, Nobody knows the deeper level of story that I have. And so for me, whether you're winning the gold medal or getting six, I want to tell that story. I want to tell the adversity that you faced to get there or how hard it was or maybe how surprising it was for you to be there. And I think that's the most beautiful thing about sports is the journey and how you end up where you ultimately get. Um, But I don't think those stories are told nearly enough. And so hopefully... I'm going to be able to get into that market and tap into it and give people some really cool, inspiring stories that are relatable to everybody. Um, because I think that's really important. You mentioned Michael Phelps. Do you, did you notice a difference in the way that the media treated the top women versus the top male swimmers? You know, I actually think swimming 
is pretty equal when it comes to that. Um, because I would argue, you know, as much attention Michael is getting, Kate Ledecky is getting it on the women's side. Um, so I do feel like it's very fair in the swimming world. I can't really speak on any other sports, but I never felt as though the women were slighted versus the men. And, and I think that's something that's really great about the sport of swimming is that we are such a cohesive unit of people. We always train together. We're always cheering for each other. We all kind of have that bond of just being a swimmer, regardless of male or female. Um, but I do think the media does a good job in swimming of keeping it pretty even and fair. Each year, the Tucker Center for Research on Girls and Women in Sports issues its report card on NCAA sports, focusing on women coaching women's sports. So the NCAA Division I swimming has received an F grade for seven straight years or as long as the records are available. The coaches that you feature in your book are all men, too. So do you think that we need more women in head swimming coaching positions? We absolutely need more women in head coaching positions, especially in the sport of swimming. I, I think I can name the top five, the only five women swim coaches in the division one programs that I'm, that I'm familiar with. You know, there's, there's less than 10 easily. And every other coach is a male obviously. And so I think we definitely need to tap into that market because there are women coaches out there. We need to get them in the front line. We need to get them those oppor opportunities and give them the chance. Because if they're not getting the chance, they're never going to have an opportunity to prove themselves. And I, we 100% we need more women on that pool deck as coaches. Elizabeth, thank you so much for chatting with us today. We will definitely link to your book, Silver Lining, and are your social media platforms so everyone can follow you. And we briefly mentioned your violin prowess at the beginning of this interview, but we really didn't do it justice. And you've written about how playing the violin is therapeutic and calming for you. And I feel like we could all benefit from those feelings right now. So we are going to say goodbye. And then we're going to tack on a file that you sent of you playing the violin, which we hope our listeners will really enjoy. And thank you again. Thank you guys so much for having me. I'm, I'm honored and humbled to be a part of this podcast. So thank you so much. Okay, Alyssa, I actually realized that a lot of really good athletes are multi-talented. Do you play any instruments? Haley, I do play piano. I actually, not quite that seriously anymore, but I did a couple years ago get a keyboard because I wanted to pick it up again. And I, I wanted to also start lessons again to like relearn the technique and the theory, which I didn't actually bring myself to do quite yet, but I hope still one day I will but I can play a lot of things that I used to know how to play. I've just forgotten. I can like read the music still. I've forgotten a lot of the theory behind it though. But um, yeah, I grew up playing. I probably played piano for like 13 years. Are you going to play for us next week? Should we include a clip of you playing piano at the end of next week's show? Because I really enjoyed Elizabeth playing the violin and I did feel like kind of calmed and therapeutic. Therapized, therapeutic. I don't know what that what uh, verb I'm looking for there, but um, would you play violin or would you play piano for us? Maybe if if we have a listener write in and request it, so ironwomanpodcast at gmail.com. If people want to hear me play piano, then I'll do it. So yeah, I'll I'll get to practicing in the meantime, just in case. All right, Alyssa, I'm holding you to that. Have a a great week, and I will talk to you soon. Bye, Haley. You have been listening to the Iron Women podcast hosted by Haley Chura and Alyssa Gadeski. Iron Women is a production of Live Feisty Media and is edited by Taylor Mahan Rudolph. Thank you to our sponsors, Zilio Skincare, Noon Hydration, Form Swim Goggles, and Orca Sportswear, as well as the Live Feisty Patreon community. You can find websites and discount codes in our show notes or at ironwomenpodcast.com.